Welcome to an ad-free episode of the Training for Ultra podcast. Hey, I'm Nick Curry. I've been running ultra marathons for 16 years. I helped found Era Viper Running, and I just set the 24-hour American record. Welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone. It's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? decided if I could, you know, finish a 50-miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 199 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra, and we have a great episode. Nick just threw down one of the most impressive American 24-hour records. It's been around for nearly a decade. We dive into it. Stay tuned. Episode 200, I've invited a special guest on. That will drop next week. Enjoy this episode. There's so much wisdom that Nick Curry uh, shares with us. Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's way overdue. You probably don't remember this because you had just been running for quite some time, but uh, we met in person at Hard Rock. I think it was your finish line in 2017. So this is, I, I've been watching all your results and just they keep getting better and it's amazing and this is long overdue so uh, welcome to the podcast yeah good to be here thanks for having me uh that was a year i think you took fifth overall and then your brother rolled in and both you guys were in the top 10 it was just like kind of a mind-blowing moment yeah i mean that's that's when i started uh getting interested in era vipa and thinking like man these two guys have figured something out i gotta <laughs> gotta follow along but Congrats on your new American record. Um, Nick's done, how many miles did you end up getting in, squeezing into that 24-hour event? 173.015. It's unbelievable. And I've I've been out with uh, Kyle Piatari to Desert Solstice, and it's an awesome event. And uh, did you actually help? found that specific event itself and then it ironically is where the record uh was just thrown down yeah uh actually right after the race uh i was joking with the everyone around that i wanted to thank myself for creating this opportunity uh (laughs) and it started because in so like what our first ultras were these like fixed time loops we did a 12 hour night run kind of not really knowing what an ultra was and what we were getting into and then we were hooked and then we did a 24 trying to head 100 miles failed miserably uh that being jamil me and our younger brother nathan and then came back ran 100 miles in 24 hours and at some point after that i found out there was this like u.s national team that goes to some world championships which just sounded awesome 
And I think the qualifying like distances at that time were around 140 miles. And so I thought, hey, I can do that. Uh, gave it a shot in 2008 and like flamed out terribly, like dropped at 50 miles. Came back in 2010 with like my first huge training block and barely qualified for the team with 136. Uh, so I was on the team for the 2011 World Championships. And so that December, Jamil and I were sitting down. And at the time, we hadn't diverged so much. You know, he's really gotten to like the gritty Barkley, and I've gotten really deep in this flat, fast stuff. Uh, but we were about the same then, both in terms of our abilities and in terms of the kinds of races we ran. And so, you know, his first comment was, well, I want to go to <laughs> uh, wherever it was that year. And there weren't really any good qualifiers, but we were, you know, we just started Aravipa and we're like, well, we're race directors now. Let's just make a race so Jamil can qualify. And so I created and organized Desert Solstice so that Jamil could uh, try to run a qualifier for the national team. Uh, and then he got hurt and dropped out. So it didn't even matter. Uh, but yeah, that year it was the only year it wasn't on a track. Joe Grant, who is much more known for his mountain running, for some reason signed up to run it. And then a runner from Japan, Tatsunori Suzuki, uh, he showed up and Joe had this huge lead from the beginning, just went out fast through 50 miles and was just crushing it. Uh, but then started to fade late as is usual in the 24. And this yeah, guy, Tatsunori was just slowly inching along slowly picking up distance on Joe and something like six or eight hours out, we realized like, holy crap, he's going to catch him. And it was like the first realization that these things could be really exciting, really compelling. And yeah, they battled it to the very end and like, we're, I don't know, a mile or two apart at the end. And so that's kind of where Desert Solstice started. But then the next year it's like, well, this race only existed for Jamil. Uh, what do we do with this thing? <laughs> And so I drew on some inspiration from a couple other races. The biggest one was called the Tipton 100, uh, which was in 1975 in England. And it was an invitation only 100 mile track invitational. And they invited 20 international runners. There was a 16 hour cutoff for the 100 miles uh, to finish. There were six guys at that race that went under 13 hours. The winner broke the 50-mile world record, the first person to ever go under five hours, and then broke the 100-mile world record uh, in that same effort in 11.38. And so it was just this unbelievable collection of runners coming together uh, and a stellar set of performances. And so that was one of the biggest inspirations to say, hey, like I think we've got something here. Uh, let's really push it as far as it can go. So we moved it to the track. We really started marketing it as not only for qualifying for the national team, but for setting national and world records. And yeah, that, that second year, Jay Aldis, uh, we convinced him to come. And he was a 50-plus runner and didn't have much experience on the flats, but had shown some speed. And he came and broke the world 100-mile for his age group by, I think it was three minutes. Uh, and again, wow. it came down to the wire. It was super exciting at the end. He was just barely holding on to the pace, like pushing super hard through it. Um, and ever since then, you know, we've just racked up performance after performance. Zach Bitter broke the American 100-mile record 2013. Camille obviously broke the world 24-hour record in 2018. So, like, it's really lived up to uh, every dream and more that I've had for it. I mean, so... I mean, in terms of like developing the race, was was the time just completely like at random for just when Jamil was needing to get a, a qualifier for 
uh, the 24-hour team? Is that why it was developed for uh, December? Or, or was that specifically so people could have, like, ideal conditions in terms of, like, the weather? Uh, well, that would be the location, too. It, like, almost never rains. Um, cooler temperatures. There's it's, – it's almost – absolutely perfect um in terms of like the lighting like the setup it's invite only so there's only so many people there like i'm assuming that's all but by design is that correct yeah it is and like the timing itself like it partially started because the national 24 hour what that i qualified at was in september and there were only a couple months left but the other key piece is that's usually the closing window for the world championship team. So worlds is often in May and then qualifying closes five months before that, which puts it in like mid to late December. And so uh, most, you know, cycles, desert solstice is one of the last qualifiers. And so it was a last chance qualifier. The weather was perfect. Uh, and just all these factors added up to make that like a perfect date. And so, how long has this race been on your calendar for 2021? Has this been like a multi-year thought process? I, I know you've done it before and you've done quite well, but in terms of going for it and, and you know, the buildup to it, has this been like a, at least a year type project or, or was this thrown in because you had a solid run rabbit run and felt good and, you know, just decided to go for it? Yeah, the the like dream fantasy, like insanely out there notion to me that like I should even have any business thinking about running a, over 172.5 miles uh, started a year before, like almost right after the previous desert solstice uh, when I was on pace for 167, fell apart five hours out, which are really the critical hours. Um, but like a lot of squinting, of well, if I fix all these things and then I do a ton more improvement and then a ton more improvement off of that, like maybe puts me at 170 and then I'm only two and a half miles away. So I started dreaming about it then. Uh, but my plan was to do the world 24 hour, which I had qualified for last year, uh, until that got canceled. And I had a notion it would probably get canceled only because they seem to struggle to keep that race. Like almost every other time it gets pushed back or completely canceled or something. And then with COVID still being as you know prevalent as it is, I imagined the weight of doing that, especially with a worldwide international event was going to uh, kind of push it over the edge of not being organizationally possible. And so while they didn't really officially cancel it until the summer, I, in my head, I was building towards that, but also ready for it to be canceled. And if that happened, like Desert Solstice was the place to go for that effort. So I would have gone for it at Worlds. And I don't know if I would have had a real shot of getting it because there's just so many more variables traveling halfway around the world. The courses can be a little more difficult. There's a lot of other factors going on that make it not as ideal. So yeah, in the back of my mind, I wasn't going to be that bummed if Worlds got canceled because it meant I had more time to prepare and I had better conditions to really go for this at Desert Solstice. Uh, so did you have to request an invitation? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I think it's probably a, an eye-rolling formality. 
from I just, uh, I had Julie, to ask Julie the race director. <laughs> uh, but but I do every time. I, I don't take for granted that uh, I, I need to also get accepted. Um, I actually, I, I've said this before that my dream with Desert Solstice is that it grows so competitive that I can no longer qualify. And the problem is I keep getting better too fast. Just, I mean, just wait, give it a few years. You'll have like the, the Gordy issue, right? Like, sorry, yeah. uh, sorry, Nick, you, you can't run it this year. Um, <laughs> so I mean, this is just unbelievable. I really want to focus in on this. You've done a lot of interviews that have given background on other aspects, but I, I, I think this is going to stand for quite some time. I mean, for the listener's background, what was the previous American record and, and also kind of put that into perspective globally as well? Yeah, so the previous record was by Mike Morton in 2012 when he won the world championships in, I think it was Poland. And to put my performance in perspective against that, uh, I was a half mile further, but I actually would say his performance is more impressive uh, for a number of reasons. You know, as I mentioned before, like the world championships tends to not be the ideal conditions. The When I ran it in 2013, like half the course is on cobblestone, like really crappy, uneven footing. There can be weird cambers. Uh, you're like way out of your element. You're like wedged into a tiny little tent with the, your entire country uh, in terms of crewing and all that stuff. Uh, there's like a lot more restrictions. You're halfway around the world. So you're dealing with jet lag. You're dealing with uh, unfamiliarity of like everything, just getting around, getting food, get, you know, bringing things in, dealing with flights and airlines and all that. Uh, and then just so many other random pressures, like even down to like a lot of the European bathrooms are like the squat style uh, and it, mile, you know, whatever, 120 of the 24 hour, uh, that can be very challenging. So like to do that performance at a world championship, I think speaks even more highly of, you know, Mike's performance and just how good it was, you know, versus me, you know, everything you can say about my stuff, like I, as you were talking about, Desert Solstice is really the ideal place. I had control of every variable. The weather was perfect. Um, everything else, like it's, you know, a 30 minute drive from my house. Uh, I didn't even have to travel or fly for it. And so I really had much better conditions. Um, not And to just throw on top of that, you know, I had super shoes, which, you know, for whatever it's worth, I do think make a difference even at 24 hours. So um, it, it, as much as, you know, I certainly have gotten the record and that's the criteria for it. Uh, I don't want to underrate like the impressiveness of Mike's performance, uh, even relative to my own. And, and where was, so this was 2012, correct? For Mike, yeah. it, where, I mean, that held for a long time, um, nearly 10 years. So where was Mike relative to the globe? Was he in the top 10? So, uh, definitely in the top 10 because, um, well, so the, the big caveat is whether you're talking about like performances or individuals, because Giannis Kuros has, I don't know, like 18 of the top 20 or something like that performances, you know, it, like he, yeah. he's, he's just run over 180 miles or 175 miles so many times that if you look at the list, it's just his name, basically. Uh, but what I understand is I'm now the seventh best 24-hour runner. Uh, and yeah, something like the 20th best performance or you know somewhere around there. And then Mike is one behind me. Uh, so at the time, I know several of those performances are new. I think 
Mike was maybe the third best behind Giannis. And I know Dennis, uh, uh, Russian, had a 175 in there. Um, and I think the rest events since Mike. So at the time he did it, it was, you know, essentially like one of the top three in the world, I believe. I mean, from from where you're standing today and you look out at Giannis's records, I mean, like what goes through your head when you think 180 miles? I mean, to me, it's just incredible. Uh, I mean, several people have asked me, am I going to go after the world record? And like, it's hard to understate how otherworldly some of those are, even uh, in the perspective of me doing 173. Like, 173 is near my limit. I, I It's certainly way further than I thought my limit was, so it's one of those I probably still could go further. Uh, there's always that room for improvement. There's always ways to figure out more things. Um, but I am fairly certain I'm pretty well optimized at this point, and I don't know how much further I could push it, and it's certainly not... 20 miles to go after a lot of Giannis's times to go after uh, Alexander Sorokin, who broke his Giannis's world record this year in another unbelievable performance. Uh, you know, that like 188, 192 is, you know, it's going from my 819 average down to a 730 average. You know, it's almost a minute a mile faster for the entirety of the 24 hours. Uh, I was just, I was looking this morning actually, and my, the first hundred from the start to the hundred mile mark, uh, I ran in 1359. My last hundred, cause I sped up, you know, from 73 miles to 173 was 1345, you know, so a good bit faster for that. Uh, I looked at Sorokin's and his first hundred was in 1214 and his last hundred, you know, slowing down was still 1241. So my fast pickup 100 miles at the end was still over an hour slower than his like holding on at the end finish pace. So it's it's one of those things like, yes, I, I think I could probably go get a couple more miles out there, but I, I'm not even in the same league. It's like I'm, it feels like I'm running a different sport altogether in some sense, because that's just so beyond anything that I did, anything I could even imagine being capable of and. Like, I, I hope there are other people who go out after that. And, like, I think there are Americans that could, but they'd have to figure out a whole lot more of the 24-hour. Uh, and, like, I'm just stoked to see people go after that kind of thing. Like, I hope that my record doesn't stand all that long. Uh, if anything, I hope to, like, reinvigorate and inspire more to go after this kind of thing. Because uh, it's incredibly difficult, but it's not impossible. And it's the more you figure out what the 24 is and how to go after it, the more it becomes tractable and doable. I mean, this was my 12th attempt at a 24 hour. And I really only had one other one that went well, like really well before this. So I had mostly failures in the 24 hour before this. It's a difficult event. It's so difficult. Um, I, I want to walk through the race, but before we go there, um, how do you think of a hundred K right now? Like, is it still, you've done so many races over the years, but you've, you've expanded what you can, you know, mentally you've expanded your distance so far in that period of time, that 24 hour window. So how does a hundred K now that standardized distance, it's shorter feel to you. I like, 
has your perception changed at all on that distance or like a hundred miles? It has. And this is one of the interesting aspects of the, the last two years of evolution that I think made this even possible where like, even now, if I'm talking to other runners, like I strongly recommend against doing training runs over, I don't know, 22, maybe 23 miles. I've heard that advice. Like I heard it 10 years ago, 15 years ago from some really experienced ultra runners. And I fully believe it and recommend it to others that beyond that, like you're mostly setting yourself up for injury Uh, and more that you should be focusing on your cumulative weekly miles, cumulative fatigue, and that by keeping it to there, like you're minimizing the chance of injury, but by stacking those, even if you like, if you really wanted to go after it, you could double morning and night that distance. Uh, But yeah, when you go to a 50 mile training run, like the chance of injury goes up so much. And so I'm in a position where I'm going against my you know own advice, uh, but it's one of those cases where once you understand it deeply enough, like you can start to break your own rules. And part of it came out of necessity of, you know, I'm doing this 24 hour, like I have to hit 16 hours uh, and feel like the race is just starting and be able to, you know, run a, a sub seven hour, 50 mile for the last seven hours after having run 120 miles. And so like my out of necessity, my needs started changing of, I have to figure out how to do this. And so I started doing more and more runs that are long, like regularly being fatigued for a bunch of them, figuring out how to make it work, um, knowing that that risk exists, but I need to do everything to keep that risk to almost zero. And so, yeah, over the last several years, I've done a bunch of different things that I think have helped with that. I think some of like my dietary and training approaches have helped. I think my mentality has helped a lot and I needed to normalize that. And I've really done it. Like now I can go on a 50 mile, like I jump in 50 mile races as training, uh, just to make sure it feels easy. Uh, like in the middle of high weeks with zero taper whatsoever, uh, the hundred K like the, actually the key run that made me think maybe I have a shot at this record was five weeks before. And I did a, a solo hundred K on a track in seven Oh six. And like, it was a solid effort and I, I had to push at the end to hold on to it. Uh, but it wasn't crazy and it didn't destroy me. Uh, and you know, as fast as like a six fifty ish pace, uh, it wasn't that intimidating. And, you know, now I'm thinking, Hey, maybe, maybe I should go run a fast hundred K and see what I can really do if I tapered for it. So yeah, my, my relationship with like the 50 mile hundred K really has changed. And I think it's just years and years of training, years and years of working on all the other details so that I can turn it from something that's risky to something that I know how to approach in a way that makes that risk almost none. I'll see you February, um, Black Canyon. At least at, yeah. the start, at the start line. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my wife Lauren's running it. I, I would love to jump into it. Like, I also, like, I just do love racing and being out there with everyone. Uh, but I've also committed to bringing some balance back into our lives and relationship. Lauren jokes that the 24 hour has been the third wheel in our relationship for too long now, <laughs> which I agree <laughs> with. And so, you know, I, I owe it to her to take a step back, not keep pushing, uh, support her for a while, and then just like do some things that aren't obsessive running, training, optimizing. How, how do you find that balance? Because you're, you're working at Google, correct? You're yeah. programming, which I'm guessing is a pretty stressful job or, yeah. or is it not? I, I don't know. It, it definitely like 
I, I sit in a chair and stare at rectangles all day. Uh, so in one sense, it's not very physically demanding. Although even then you could argue that this is maybe the least healthy thing I do because I'm not moving around much. Um, but the flip side is it's incredibly mentally demanding. You know, like I'm building something that's going to get used by 2 billion people. So there's like a lot of very challenging problems with a lot of attention to detail. And so it's one of those things like I used to not be a morning runner at all and would prefer to run in the afternoons. And now I have to run in the morning because by the time I'm done with, you know, eight, nine hours of work, like my brain is zapped. I can't do anything. I've lost all willpower. So I like have to get my good things done in the morning because, yeah, like I, I do. I love the work. Um but it's mentally very draining a lot of days. Um, and then even then, you know, I'm still involved in Aravipa uh, here and there, you know, kind of my night job uh, as an owner and kind of working with Jamil. So, you know, you stack that on top. And yeah, basically all I do now is run and work. So <laughs> are, are you involved in the the pizza company also or? Uh, I'm not. I, I was okay. real early, but I, again, kind of with time, I just, I, I had to step back from that because I didn't have anything extra to add to, to what my brothers are doing there, which, you know, they're obviously, they're doing a great job with that. Yeah, they are. Um, all right. So it's day of the race. You live a half an hour away. I mean, you've done so many of these races, you probably don't get nervous really at all. I'm guessing is, is it correct that Thursday before, uh, you know, getting that good night of sleep, not the night before the race, but two nights before is key for you? Or do you find the night before is the most important? And then, yeah, get me to the start line day of uh, your your big 24 effort. Yeah, I, I've heard, always heard that two nights before is the most important. I tend to agree with it, and I shoot for that. Uh, I mostly got it right this time. I actually got about 12 hours of sleep Thursday night uh, just to really try to like make sure I was fully rested. It actually made it hard to get to sleep Friday night. I think I only got five and a half hours um, and just hoped that that balanced out. So, yeah, woke up Saturday morning. uh Went for a little shakeout run, like just to try to get uh, things moving so I can hopefully reduce uh, a one bathroom break at the start of the race. Uh, get all my stuff together. Lauren drives me out, get all my things set up at the table, do another couple shakeout laps on the track. What's what's and, that conversation like? Where, is there any talk? Are you guys listening to music? Are you talking about, did you pay the bills? Like, is it like real... <laughs> real nonchalant type chatter are you talking strategy uh i don't quite remember like probably a mix of uh like chit chat but then also if there's quiet i i know my brain just goes back to the race and thinking about all the little details uh so yeah um i I don't stress it too much i mean a super common point will be i try to under stress everything so Mm-hmm. And so you, you show up, um, each team has like a, a designated tent and everything. Walk me through these new shoes you're wearing and like some of the gear and some of the nutrition that's being laid out on the table and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So like my setup, like I've, I've tried to boil it down to a science. Actually, one of the things I really learned earlier this year, self-crewing for a couple of races 
was how valuable it is to be capable of self-crewing and make things like completely uh, mindless for your crew to the extent you can, like to the extent that you're able to plan for. Like, obviously, there are always things that will come up. But if you have a good idea about steps, I just make it so that you can't get it wrong. And that's really helped like me. I don't have to think about so much during the race. My crew doesn't have to like talk back and forth with me so much. So like I had Ziploc baggies every single hour with the nutrition nutrition I expected for that hour, whether that's electrolytes or calories or, you know, Vespa or anything like that. I just had it with the, the hour, with the time of day. Um, and then any other little information I needed. I actually had my goal miles, like number of laps that I wanted to hit just in case I couldn't do the math in my head, um, all packed in one bin. And then I had a number of other bins, you know, one with clothes, one with food, um, all laid out. So if I needed to ask for something, it was all there. Um, shoe wise, I had extra shoes planning on not using them, which I didn't. Um, I put on a brand new pair of Nike Vaporflies uh, at the start, and then hopefully that's what I would finish in. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it's all there. And then there's a few things that, you know, I know my, I'll need my crew to be refreshing, like water bottles constantly. I had a cooler with ice in it so that I, if it got hot, which it did, uh, I could be soaking two different shirts in ice and swapping them out every several laps. Um, yeah, so just tried to dial it all in, let my crew know the things that would be variable and then let them know which things would be constant and I want regardless. So you, you wrote some software and used AI to like basically write out your, your hourly plan here. It sounds like, I mean, (laughs) this is, this is detailed. I, that's, uh, it's really amazing. And so, I mean, is most of the nutrition, Real food, liquid calorie, gels, what are you trying to put in you? So what I have narrowed on the last five years, and I'll give the caveat that every time I seem to get my nutrition dialed in, it seems to stop working. (laughs) And then I have to completely refigure it out, which is exactly what happened this race. Um, It should have happened the previous races, but I held on stubbornly to it. And it's the biggest problem I had in the whole race. Um, I do a lot of fruit smoothies. Uh, especially in races like this where I have crew accessible all over the place. And the reason I like them is if I do something like pure sugary sports drink gels, I get sick of them fairly quick where it just like, it feels like it coats your tongue. And I feel like I'm just kind of nauseous from it, from that like sugar overload. Uh, And then the flip side, if I do too much solid food, it just feels like it bogs me down. So fruit smoothies were like the nice middle ground where they go down easy. They're clean, they're quick burn but also they feel like they have some substance. So for a long time, they've worked well for me. But I think this, especially as I run faster and faster, like they start moving through me and then they start coming out of me. I get real gassy. Uh, and then I have to make too many porta potty stops, basically. And that plagued me the whole like last 14 hours of the race. And I probably lost between three and five minutes to it over the course of the race. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's rare to hear fruit smoothie along with Vespa just because that's typically like a, a high fat kind of ketosis type mentality. But I mean, even the the Zach Bitters are throwing in candy and, and you know, pure sugar as well. Um, how, how did you come to this balance of, of things and um, tell me more about halfway and how how you got through those 
bathroom breaks. I mean, I've talked to quite a few people that have won races and they had to, you know, shift over to the bushes every, every so often. I mean, you are kind of in the limelight there. That's a little uh, unnerving just because those porta potties are there. Everyone's like, oh, Nick, seven GI issues or whatever. Um, I mean, tell me more about your diet. Let's start there. And then I, I want to hear more about how that's affecting your race. Cause it might've just taken you mentally like off focusing on pain and just being more focused on your stomach and you just kept running somehow. <laughs> um, are, are you high fat, low carb or, or where are you on that spectrum? Yeah. So I'm in like the, the OFM optimized fat metabolism is the closest term to throw at it. Um, so yeah, 2014 is the first time I experimented with like the keto like diet, uh, largely inspired by Zach. And I started my first several attempts at it. I would do it two to three months before a hundred mile, like very admittedly, I love carbs. Pizza's great. Ice cream's great. Cookies are great. Like I couldn't forever do a no carb, low carb diet. Um, and so my first several attempts, I would only do it for a couple months leading up to a race. And I'd see pretty good results, like, you know, as advertised, I'd say, meaning, you know, your energy levels are more stable. You need to take in less calories. If you have issues and you can't eat, you can ride it out longer. Um, I'd also at that point already been using Vespa, um, which has similar effects. Like I almost think Vespa is more valuable on a high carb diet because it simulates a lot of the benefits and you don't have to change your diet at all. Uh, but in 2019, I kind of went full bore. So 2018, I'd run 155 at desert solstice and I was trying to see like, what are the, like it, that felt like that was my limit. And I had really optimized. I negative split it. I was just barely hanging on at the end. And so I had not much left to give. So like, where do I go from there? If I want to keep getting better, I need to keep innovating, trying new things, figuring stuff out. So 2019, uh, I hired Peter Defty to like nutritionally coach me just to see what, like, not me just guessing and making up some stuff on my diet, but actually someone who like had a lot more experience with it. Uh, and we tried a lot more things. Uh, we tweaked a bunch of things and I came out with what I think is a massive breakthrough. Like it's always hard to attribute it to one thing when you're changing a lot of things. Uh, but my recovery just started going through the roof in late 2019 there was like a what five week period where I won five ultras or something like that, including a couple course records. Um, and so I was basically sold at that point that like this seems to unambiguously improve my ability to race ultras specifically. So I've pretty much stuck with that since then. Um, I don't like I, I struggle to call it keto because it uses keto, but also like I eat plenty of carbs like probably once or twice a week, I deliberately eat more carbs to top up my glycogen so I can go have, you know, a fast speed work or I can go have a really high quality long run. Uh, and then there's other times where like stressing out is going to jack up your cortisol and mess up your, you know, body's chemical balance and kick you out of ketosis anyways, if your goal is to be in it. And so like, if I'm just having a day, like I just want a granola bar or I want some pizza or, you know, something like that. Uh, I never stress on it. And I find like the more I'm doing things right anyways, like I don't really have too many of those days. 
but when I have them, I also like the last thing I want to do is worry about it or be strict about it. And so like overall together, that's really seemed to help. Like I can go do 30 mile training runs on zero calories uh, easily. And I can do a 50 mile like hard race, you know, sub six hours on less than a thousand calories. So like the benefits seem to be real. They seem to be enduring. My recovery just seems uh, very impressive now. And again, that's not the only factor, but it definitely seems to have helped uh, every time that I brought it back in. Are you brewing your own kombucha? <laughs> that's, a, find... that, that's a trend I have not gotten into. Okay. I, I've, I've heard rumors of people that are optimizing their kombucha and, and whatnot. Um, and, and so do you have trouble with hydration when you are like fully optimized um, as opposed to when you're, you know, in, in previous years when you're not so focused on this type of diet? It's different. Like day to day, water goes through you a lot quicker. So you have to really remember to take electrolytes at certain times. Like if you, if you don't, you're fine, but then you're just like peeing a lot more, you know, wake up in yeah. the middle of the night, like six times or something. Uh, because yeah, there's not as much like food to hold on to the water. Uh, during a race, I pound a, way more electrolytes than I used to. But other than that, like I, I actually think once I'm pounding those electrolytes, I'm actually even in a better state because there's so much lower stomach distress, especially when it's hot, that Sometimes like water and salt is enough to ride me through long periods and I'm, I'm still eating. It's not that I'm not eating during there, but I don't even have to eat that much. Yeah. So morning in the race, uh, you, you just laced up your, your vapor flies and, um, I mean, tell me how's the temperature. Is it like looking ideal in terms of all those external variables that you guys are trying to control at that race? Yeah, like it was on the cooler side. It wasn't overcast. It was sunny, which is one of the things that I, I'll get into uh, in terms of the biggest things I had to manage during the race. So to most people, it was not hot. It was maybe 65. Uh, in my mind, that's really hot for an ideal performance. And so I was concerned about it to the extent that I would had a lot of heat mitigations ready, which I used heavily during the race. Uh, but then the nights were not going to be too bad either. And then one of the biggest concerns that we had last year were really bad winds at like two, 3 AM. And that was looking good too. And, you know, never came into play. So yeah, it really, I couldn't have asked for much of a better day. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like almost like an indoor track situation. <laughs> yeah. Mean, the only better race I've ever had was six days in the dome, which is yeah inside of a controlled arena where you have a thermostat. Awesome. Um, I, I grew up and in, in used to have hockey practice there like every week. So I'm, I've put in a lot of hours there, just never on my, like on my actual running shoes. <laughs> um, so did you take off like conservatively, like your, your whole strategy and you've talked about this fairly widely, you know, trying to negative split this event. I mean, tell me, about those first few laps and like how you're feeling in terms of being disciplined on that front. Yeah. And that's another, I don't know that I've had any specific breakthroughs, but I've just gotten better and better and better and better and better at is 
like managing the mental aspect of it. Like obviously one of the hardest things in a 24 hour, especially on a track is like, don't you get bored? Don't you get impatient? What do you focus on? How do you keep focused? And uh, the last two years I've developed this mantra of sorts that works for me. And it's that on my watch, I put a single like data field and it's just the lap pace. And I click it every single time I cross the timing mat. So I all the only data I can see is that lap, and that's all I want to think about. And I glance at my watch sometimes every single 100-meter mark. Uh, it depends on the lap. Once I'm into a flow, I may not look that often. But it, it I, I, I don't stress it at all. But I kind of it's like comforting to look and see, yep, I'm on pace. Yep, I'm on pace. Oh, I'm a second fast. I can chill this next 100 meters. Uh, and I just get into a really, like, good flow for myself of sorts by doing that. And so, yeah, the very first lap we start out and I start out a little quick because you don't know what your pace feels like. All the adrenaline's there, like you're excited. Everyone else is there. You're in the middle of a pack. And I realize at 200 meters that I'm going way too fast. So I like hit the brakes <laughs> like 250 meters in and a bunch of the field just flies by me uh, by the end of the first lap. And then, yeah, from there, I settle right into exactly where I want to be, which was the first eight hours was uh, 2.06 per lap. And I just start cranking those out uh, like clockwork. I mean, are you listening to music throughout this or are you non-music? I, I have no idea. I didn't at all. I was prepared for it because I thought at the end, if it got tough, it'd be nice to throw in, you know, my, my favorite hard rock. Uh, but even at the end, I didn't because it was more, I was in such a good place and it was more valuable to talk with my crew. I mean, what, when you're starting to go in flow, I assume there's not much even entering your head. You're just kind of in the zone. Is that what the majority of the day was like, at least for the first half or, or, or what's going through your head as you're doing this? Yeah, it, it largely is like a lot of it's focusing like it kind of those little checkpoints are the perfect amount of time that it keeps me in a rhythm where my mind wasn't doesn't wander so far that I get distracted. Uh, but it's also not so focused that like I go crazy trying to overfocus. It's like just enough little checkpoints that I kind of enjoy the running itself. You know, running itself is enjoying it, it, enjoyable. It's one of the things that I love about it. You feel that flow. You feel that uh, like kind of runner's high and just like smooth locomotion and you know as much as it's weird to say that I've kind of gotten that down for 24 hours it kind of feels like I've gotten that down for 24 hours after years like that for sure was not the case for a long time and I would tr have to figure out all kinds of different mental games and there's still some of that going on there's times that are a little harder to stay focused but yeah largely I'm thinking about the race sometimes I'm watching the other runners and thinking about their races or chit-chatting back and forth um, but not too much because I also, you know, that itself can be a big distraction. And so at what point were you like, okay, too much smoothie, like this, this is not going well. Um, like at what point is David Laney, like Laney, like veering far away from you, you know, uh, when, when's your stomach start giving you issues and, uh, like, tell me how you were coping with that mentally too. Yeah, so probably before that, uh, just to kind of work through the race, the like by the second or third hour, it was getting warm, as I mentioned. And so I went into full heat mitigation. Um, and 
I was using cooling sleeves, which I find to be one of the most effective when it's not humid and Arizona is like bone dry. It's great for that. Um, so I kept like every mile I would soak them with ice water. And then I had these like rabbit perforated shirts that are great in the heat. And I would swap those out dunked in ice, like every couple miles. Um, and overall that seemed to help with the heat a lot. Like I try to keep my body temperature feeling like it's about 50 degrees, maybe 45 out. Um, so got through the whole day with that. Yeah, I was drinking the smoothies the whole time. Didn't have any issues until uh, the sun goes down and I get to about 10 hours. And that's when like, I start feeling it's like pressure right around my waist, like kind of right in uh, that area. Um, that's all the gas building. And it's one of those you can't fully trust it. And every time I was stopping, it was almost always just gas, but not always um the danger zone yeah it was totally the danger zone and then like it was just a little bit wet <laughs> um if you want to go in the real real the, the fun details no um, I, I mean i'm more thinking about like how is this mentally affecting your race and i mean it seems it's weird because it's almost like a single thing that you ate kind of did not agree but i have no idea um I mean, do you think it was the dehydration? And then tell me more about like mentally, like how this is affecting your race. You just threw down, you know, American record. So I, I'm just interested to see how it affected your performance. Yeah. So yeah, starts at 10 hours. Like at this point, like I still stick with the smoothies because like to a certain extent, I, I mix in a little more of the other food I have. But I also know it's going to provide me with the energy I need. Like the biggest thing that I was super worried about is like going into the race. I knew like if I'm going to get this, it's going to come down to either low single digit minutes or seconds uh, that I have almost no buffer to play here. And each of these bathroom breaks are taking, you know, 15 to 20 additional seconds, you know. And so all I'm thinking is. Like that's the record right there. <laughs> if, if I keep making these stops once an hour, you know, twice an hour, that adds up pretty quick to, you know, three to five minutes, which is ultimately what it was. Um, and so I don't know if I can make that up. And like my, I mentioned I started at 206s. So eight hours in, I dropped to 205s. And then 12 hours in, I dropped to 204s. So to build in a, a a bathroom break? No, that that was okay. just the plan to start. Meaning okay. these bathroom breaks on top means I now have to be running even faster than those increases. Got it. Uh, and I just I, I just don't know if that's going to be too much. Uh, like what my one of my only data points was a year ago during solstice, I tried to drop to two hundred fours in the middle of the race just to see what they'd feel like in the middle of a twenty four hour. And I lasted half an hour before I couldn't hold it anymore. Meaning, like, I have a year extra of improvement in trying to prepare for this. But still, like, a year is not that much time. And so 204s in a 24-hour are no joke for me. <laughs> um, so I'm, like, really, that's the thing that's really bothering me is this might put the whole thing at jeopardy if I'm losing even a couple minutes to this because that might be the only buffer that I have in the whole race. Super. So things finally work work themselves out or, or does this just continue all the way through the end 
So it continued. It got worse. Uh, I think 14 hours was the worst point in it. Um, I had like there was one lap where I came to a complete full stop, uh, like hands on knees, cramping, uh, couldn't run a step for several seconds, tried to make it to the bathroom and didn't quite get there. Uh, the, if you look and see, there's like two laps almost in a row. One's a three minute and one another's a 2.30 because of, of cleanup. Um, like not terrible, but uh, like then I'm like, I, I really have to figure something out. So I pretty much stopped with the smoothies at that point. Um, I actually, my crew got some like wet wipes, some baby wipes. And those helped me decrease the amount of time in the bathroom. Like surprisingly, uh, it takes a long time in porta potties to get their sandpaper toilet paper off the rolls because you got to find the end and then you got to get a bunch of it. Um, so then it, even just having like the wet wipes with me prepared when I went in, um, even when nothing was wrong, like I like during the race, I optimized. I like have the time of my bathroom breaks and that helped pull back some time as well. Um, and then once I got James Benet crewing me the last eight hours, uh, he's my coach. He's crazy experienced at all of this. Nice. Like he really started thinking for me, uh, and getting me back out of that hole. So he switched up a bunch of my food. He started giving me like dry toast. Basically. He's like, we got to soak up this stuff. And that's really where it started improving pretty steadily to the end. Uh, he, where he, he went all old school on you, yeah. Like, like your like if your mom was at an aid station, right? Like she knows all the secret concoctions. <laughs> yep. So yeah, from there, uh, it, it didn't completely go away. I was still making more stops than I would have preferred, but a lot less than I had been making. Um, and like, kind of was able to pull the the stop time down to a reasonable level uh, for the last eight hours. Was there something he he said to you that you remember at this point that kind of resonated and stuck in your your mind for a few laps? I don't know if there was a specific thing. It was just it was a lot of logistical back and forth. Uh, like one of the other improvements I've made from even last year is when things would go south, they'd go really south for me. Like I'd go into one of those dark places where you just get like really stubborn and grumpy and you like don't want to listen to anyone else. And you're like, I'm just going to suffer and I'm going to push through this. And I'm going to get it. But like, I, I just don't want to hear anything. Uh, like I have had a bad history of going into that place when my races get rough. And a bunch of the work I did earlier this year was to be able to get out of that. And I have been able to flip it around and like stay into a positive state for like the entirety of races now, even when they get tough. And this was no exception where like throughout it, I was constantly back and forth. Like even when this stuff started happening, like Lauren, my wife was crewing me and I was chatting back and forth with her. She's like on the phone with her mom, who's a nutritionist trying to figure out like she's running out buying like some gas X and getting that in me. And then like warm liquids were another thing that uh, her mom recommended that I started doing that seemed to help uh, reduce the cramping. Um, so yeah, kind of the, like my whole crew the whole time was just trying to help me. I, I tell them what's going wrong. And then it's, it's one of those things, sometimes you're running and you just can't process it yourself or like you don't have like the ability to go figure out more information. Uh, and so they're doing it for me. 
And that was extremely helpful with this and with uh, all the other little things that ended up popping up uh, to go from like, this is a potential thing that could go wrong and then could go really wrong to like, we're nipping at this at the bud. We're going to figure out a way to get through it. We're going to figure out a way to uh, minimize the bad and then hopefully just get it gone completely if we can. I mean, talking to you really reminds me uh talking to Michelle Yates when she won run rabbit run with, you know, stomach issues, she had won that race before the start line. Like how much of this had you mentally committed to doing something special? Oh, like a a thousand percent. Like that's all I've thought about this year. (laughs) Uh, Like so many times I've run through every little aspect of the race, like try to imagine at any point in the race, so many things going wrong and what am I going to do to figure those out? Like I can't predict what those will be. I can predict some of them. And if I can predict them, I'm going to try to stop them from ever happening. And then the things I can't predict, how am I going to be ready to respond to them? Uh, How am I going to come back from it? Because as much as it feels like that can end your day, uh, I've seen the opposite happen so many times between my own races, between, you know, race directing for years with Aravipa to all the other races I've been a part of. Like the remarkable runners, they're not the ones who never have any issues because no one has no issues. It's the ones that are ready to adapt to any issues that come up and get past them and not that not let that be the excuse for why they stop, why they slow down, why they can't make it to the end. Uh, it's almost like, well, that of course that's going to happen, but why would that get in the way? I'm just going to figure out a way around it. need to start doing some consulting for like, special forces you're probably gonna have those guys reaching out you're, you're hitting a whole different level on the mental game like i've rarely i you know we're on episode 199 um so i've talked to one or two runners and and your next level on on your mental game and regardless of your physical condition you just set a, an amazing record um, how how did it feel crossing that lap when you knew it you know you had passed that that previous 2012 mark and you were kind of going into a different realm yeah it's was one of the things that i i almost tried to prepare for most like i could imagine like what would it feel like to do that? And it was just overwhelming. Like every time I tried to imagine it, it's like, I'm just going to break down in tears and cry. Uh, like tears of joy, tears of disbelief, all of that. Um, and during the race, I, the last two, three hours, I started finding myself going into that state, like imagining it. And I had to stop myself, uh, both because like, I know better than almost anyone, like two, three hours is a very long time out there. Like one little thing goes wrong and then that's it, you're toast. Like I still have 20 more miles to go, which is a long distance when everything feels potentially on edge. And then even the things that don't feel on edge could still go wrong at any single wrong step. And so like the the whole last several hours, I'm just terrified that something's going to go wrong. I'm going to pull a muscle. I'm going to like something else is going to go wrong and I'm just going to barely miss it. Because while I had a buffer, it was not very big. And the other side is every time I started to imagine it, I did start to tear up as I'm running. And I'm like, that that's also like that could be the thing that goes wrong. 
is I just get a little too distracted. So I had to keep suppressing it over and over again until like probably three, four laps out. And then it was finally time that like I can start to experience this. And like I, I'm out there running and like I can just feel my face like contorting. Like I, 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 I again just wanted to cry like. I, I can't like I can't believe it. it actually I'm here like I've imagined this day so many times like I have realized how impossible this is so many times like out of complete necessity I have just tried to reinvent myself over and over and over and over and over again like, almost every single day this year trying to find new ways to get a little bit here a little bit there to get myself that much closer to this being possible and then you know those last few laps, like I had done it, like I had done all the work, it was pretty inevitable. And yeah, so it just starts overwhelming me. And I, I was watching some of the live cast again, and you can see it on my face, like I almost don't know how to feel. Uh, because it's so many emotions, all mixed in all hitting me at once. I'm surrounded by like, you know, my wife is there, my coach is there, like so many people I've known for decades now are there. And so many other people that, you know, I've just met are there and all supporting, all cheering. And it was like completely overwhelming for me. That's amazing. Um, and, and so Jake Jackson, probably one of my favorite people on the planet, most humble guy ever. He's out there running as well. It sounded like you guys put in a few miles here and there. Um Tell me about how that dynamic went. And this truly, to me, sounds like your most humble race you've ever started and finished. Like, to me, and it's weird because performance, ego-driven type thoughts actually, it you know, help performance. But to a certain point where maybe you're hitting a different level where the humbleness of of starting slow is taking your performance even further it, do you have any thoughts on that and uh i just wanted to shout out jake so <laughs> yeah uh let's start there and then we'll come back to jake because uh, that was a fun little moment that we had um so something that comes to mind uh is kind of a mentality i I can, I've had as long as I can remember. And for years, I'd never heard like a description of it. And there's a business book that I, I read uh, called Good to Great that put a name to it. And they called it the Stockdale Paradox. And it, it was like a, a General Stockdale, I believe. And he was a POW and he got captured during, uh, so I think it was maybe Korea or something. But, like, he identified that, like, all of these POWs, the ones that were the optimists were the ones that lasted the least amount of time because they were always hopeful that, like, they'd get out of that situation, you know, by Christmas or by Easter or something like that. And every time it came and went, uh, they just lost a little more hope. Um, and so it's not being optimistic about where you're going that's really the key. It's that, like, you do want to be optimistic in the long term but you need to be completely realistic in the short term. And that's the mentality that I think has helped get me to this kind of a place where, yeah, in the long term, like I have to fully believe 
that I can run 173 miles. Like there's no possible way to get there otherwise. But I also have to fully be realistic about where I'm at. You know, one year ago, I'm looking at this and it's it's a joke to think that I could run 173 miles in 24 hours. It's, you know, how many runners have there been that say they're gonna go after the American record? Uh, and look at 24 hours, like it, six hours in, I think I was in 13th place, <laughs> meaning 12 other runners were well above pace for the American record. Uh, but that's typical. Like you can go out with all the big aspirations you want, but if you're not really realistic about what it takes, like you're not gonna make it there. And so being completely realistic about where I'm at and seeing like, holy crap, like it's unbelievable how far I am from 100, 173. Also, I am fully convinced I will get there you you just start feeling that gap like it becomes this like constant present irritant that like i have to fix that i'm not on the trajectory for there like i'm not doing nearly enough for it and uh, i i made the comment earlier that i i kind of got there out of necessity and like all of this obsession all these details like all these you know dozens and dozens and dozens of improvements that i've made over this year like little tweaks big tweaks everywhere in between uh was all driven by this realization that i'm still so far i need to do more i don't even know what that stuff is i have to go start figuring out what that is and then once i figure it out i have to do all the hard work for each and every one of those little things and so yeah, to do that ultimately at the end of the day, like it takes a huge amount of confidence, but you also have to have zero cockiness about it. Like you can't take any of it as a given. You have to take all of it as like way bigger than yourself. And like even attempting it is uh, like this extreme privilege for me that like I might be able to give a shot at this and like what that would mean, I don't, I don't even know. Um, I'm going to do it and like, I'm going to give it my best shot, but also like, I kind of assumed there was a, like, I, I did assume there's a huge chance that none of this is even going to work out. I'm just going to, you know, completely fail at it. Um, that was, you know, up to the last moment, a complete possibility. Interesting. And, and what was it like, um, with Jake? Cause Jake had a great race too. Yeah, he did. You, you kind of took the limelight <laughs> yeah setting way to go nick <laughs> T- taking uh taking everyone's limelight i'm joking <laughs> um yeah. did did it help was it at a low point was it at a high point i have no idea um i don't know it's just a fun point like i caught him right before 100 miles like 98 99 and one of the best parts about it is so if you're familiar with usatf track rules you can only run with other individuals on your lap. And so like the very start of the race, you can run with some people, but then you all splinter out into your own worlds. And then you're not allowed to run with other people because it's considered pacing. And so when we actually were on the same lap again, we could run together. And so, you know, he's like, Hey, you mind if I just, you know, hop onto your back and run with you? I'm like, please, like, this is awesome. Like this, I wish we could do more of this, but you just can't in this style race for that reason. And so like we're rolling into a hundred miles and we're joking about, yeah, like, you know, are we going to, you know, who's going to go first? 
And like we both agreed we're just going to you know finish it together. I, I, I said we should hold hands and skip through the 100 mile. Uh, so we're just having a great time. And then like the like race director and timer and all the volunteers with stopwatches, like they start looking a little concerned and like the, the lap before, and then we roll through together and then they look even more confused and then they're scrambling. And this is another thing that I went back and watched the live cast. And then I was talking to Julie, the race director, and they were worried because the stopwatches had like the slightest, tiniest bit of drift between all of them, which is typical. And they were worried, even though they clocked, you know, six stopwatches, three for each of us at the same time. They're like, what if they don't match? <laughs> they're freaking out. That's that's really interesting. And I mean, I appreciate all your time. I have like one or two last questions here. Um, that's really interesting story, though. I, I would never have guessed that. Um, I mean, first of all, I'll say if... I am of the opinion if you want to run beyond 175 miles, I if you actually want to, I think you can. Um, do you think you've fully reached your limit with 173 miles? I I'm going to take the other side personally, but um, tell me more about like what is what's your distance limit within 24 hours right now in your head? It's tough to say, like. Two years ago, if you asked me, I would have been very optimistic and said maybe 170 one day if I really put everything in there, which I, I guess I kind of did. Um, I'd probably give a similar answer now, which is, I don't know, like maybe 176, 178, 180 if I really like if I quit my job <laughs> yep. and dedicated full time to it. Um, I, I don't think that's out of the realm. Like, I think I could have gotten half a mile to a mile more if I'd gotten those other couple issues to go better this time. You know, I, I really got a long ways this year doing a bunch more like strength training, cross training to make myself more robust. And that really helped. Uh, so let's say I keep doing that. I just keep working harder, getting more fitness. I've got several more years in my prime. Um, I could push up that direction. You know, could I go 190 plus uh, like I'm pretty sure that's just beyond my genetics. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I, like anyone, am not going to say that's 100% sure. But also, I, I don't know that I will dedicate in my life enough to find out. Yeah, I think Kip Chogi says there's no limits. But, I mean, the guy has absolute perfect genetics. And for him, there might not be limits. But, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean... What are your aspirational type races in the future? I know you got into hard rock, right? Yeah. So, I mean, are you thinking a sixth time there or like where, where are you looking out for the next year? If, if you want to share it, if not totally fine. Yeah. I mean, like the nice thing about all this for me is like years ago, I started checking things off my bucket list that were never on there. Meaning like I've never had a huge bucket list for running and I've just tried to enjoy everything that I decide to go after. I did hard rock before I knew what it was and knew that it should be on my bucket list. Uh, like I qualified for the U S 24 hour team and ran worlds, you know, well early into my career, like this never ever was on my bucket list. It was beyond what I imagined. So like I've already done everything that I could want to do. Uh, and now I just get to do, you know, kind of gravy on top. And so yeah, hard rock, I'm pretty excited to go and see what I can do. Like there's other races that, 
I would love to do one day. If I don't do them, I'm not worried. But, you know, Western obviously is very classic. I'd love to race there. Uh, I think Badwater, I'd be especially well-tuned for every single difficult aspect of that race. Like the heat, the climbing, the distance, the road, the, you know, all of that stuff is perfect for me. Uh, I don't really get into the 200s, but I want to do Cocodona. <laughs> Because uh, it, it's just such a classic Arizona race, and I I would love to do that one day. That's cool. That was uh, that was going to be a question. And so, last question here: um, What advice do you have for the listener? And I'll keep it really general, just with trail running, ultra running, whether it be going for records or hard rocks or, or whatever it might be. Um, what advice do you have for the listener? I think the biggest is you need a foundation of like enjoying what you're doing and it's good to push and it's good to set goals and go after that. But like at the end of the day, if you're not enjoying it, you're going to burn out and you're going to struggle to make it when things really get tough and you're going to lose purpose. And the flip side is like, if you were really enjoying it and finding more and more ways to enjoy it, you know, whether that's the actual running, whether that's the community you're with, whether that's other aspects of the training, whether that's the benefits you get, you know, outside of the obvious. Uh, that's something that has fueled me this year more than I would have guessed has been super important. Like even the race itself, I had shockingly low numbers of low points and shocking, like I didn't really have major dips in energy. And part of that was how much I was enjoying it out there. And I don't normally assume that I can even, like I assume I'm not gonna enjoy being on a track. I'm, I, I make plenty of comments that I'm doing it the same reason you do a road marathon. Like it's hard, but you wanna see what you can accomplish. But the truth was when I was out there, like probably at least once an hour, I would just take a break from focusing on the splits. I'd kind of scan around, look at the other runners, look at like the red of the track, the green of the grass, like, all the people out there spectating, supporting, and just remember like, like how nice it is to be there. There's, they're all friends. Uh, like I just love to run in general and I'm still running. I'm still smooth. Uh, I'm still having a good time. Um, and suddenly that would bring me to this place of like giddy joy. And yeah, if anything had started to go wrong, I would be completely refreshed uh, all over again and then re-excited about the rest of the race. So I think to the extent that any runner can find that in their own place with what they're doing, like that's what's going to keep you running for years or decades and enjoying it and coming back and then continuing to get better and better. I couldn't agree more. Nick, I enjoyed this conversation. I, I enjoy doing podcasts and that's why I do it. Um, and yeah, I, I love your philosophy there at the end. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, let's see. I'm not huge on social media. I'm trying to get better. Uh, but I'm on Instagram, Facebook, a little bit on Twitter, uh, Nick Curry runs. I also have a blog, nickcurryruns.com where I I've started posting some of my different ideas about like what's helped me be successful. Awesome. Highly recommend people check that out. And Nick, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah. Thanks Rob. This was awesome. That was episode 199. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Big thank you to Nick. Big shout out and congrats to him. New American 24-hour record. Just absolutely amazing. Shout out to the show sponsors, Tannery Outdoors, Exoskin, 
and the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, their GRIT series. Thank you to you Patreon supporters. And just as Nick mentioned there at the end, most importantly, don't forget to enjoy your training. See you next week for episode 200.